What is up, horror and science fiction fans? It is Danny and Pete, Pete, from the Lassercast, and we are joined by David Weiner, once again, friend of the channel, uh, the director of In Search of Darkness 1 and 2, uh, and now you bring us In Search of Tomorrow, uh, four, and, four hours and 45 minutes plus of 80s science fiction goodness. David, how you doing? And tell us about the project and all the fundraising info that uh, we need to know. Well, happy to be here. Uh, happy to be back with you guys. And um, well, let's see. I did two horror movies, part one and part two of 80s horror, uh, with a third on the way, as you guys well know. Um, but when we were doing In Search of Darkness, um, Robin Block, who is the mastermind behind all of this, he's just like, you know, we should, we just did an action one. We're working on a, a horror one, sci-fi, 80s sci-fi. That's like the next, the next logical step. And I said, ding, that, you know, that, that, keep on checking my boxes, sir. Keep on checking my boxes. And so uh, I'm a lover of all different genres. And so... Once we completed In Search of Darkness and In Search of Darkness Part Two, which both ended up being four and a half hours long, structured 1980 to 1989, a number of movies within each year, and then a chapter in between, larger context topics and discussion, uh, multiple people, 50, 60 people or more, you know, from the era icons of the era in front of the camera, behind the camera, you know, in, inspired by all that stuff. Like, let's bring that formula over and just keep on going because, you know, everyone seems to be very receptive to that, the people who get it. There are plenty of people who are like, why isn't this a series or why do I have to sit so long? Uh, and those are valid questions, but we can talk about that stuff later. But ultimately... Here we are in search of tomorrow, a, a movie that took longer to make because we shot it during some inconvenient COVID something or other that I don't know, some people might have been affected by. It affected us, so it took a while. Uh, so very proud to have this movie finally uh, out. And we could talk about it again later, but I'll just say you can get it now through March 27th. If you go to 80sscifidoc.com, go to that site. That's the only way you can get it. Can't get it streaming, can't get it at the store. That's how you get not only the movie, digital copy, physical copy on DVD or Blu-ray, but you also get your name in the credits or your podcast in the credits, whatever you like. And uh, you get to be proud to help shepherd this thing into its life. Well, I am really glad that people are shepherding this project because this is like just a trip down memory lane. And it's just like the best of the best. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, you said that it's multiple hours long, but it's like, it never feels like it's dragging. And there's not a single part that I would hope that you would admit. I think there's like a lot more I'd like to include in there. And I just think it was fantastic. I was thinking, you. you know, we've watched In Search of Darkness for our channel. For In Search of Tomorrow, there seems to be like a different kind of tone, right? The formula is the same for the documentaries, but the tone seems different. There seems to be like a little bit more of a reverence for science fiction. Whereas in the uh, horror movies, it's more like people are talking about having a good time and enjoying those movies. I was kind of thinking of like a metaphor. It's kind of like sci-fi is like the nerdy uncle that like, <laughs> you know, got the girl and made a ton of money when they got older. 
But uh, horror is kind of like the uncle that's like at the part-time job trying to really focus <laughs> on their metal band, you know? And so I was wondering, did you ask the same kind of questions during In Search of Tomorrow? Or, uh, you know, and you got different responses from the people? Or did you ask different types of questions? My first question out of the gate was, which uncle are you? Are you the nerdy uncle with the hot chick who, after your midlife crisis, you did well for yourself by... Now getting into the NFT game, that was really my question. And I didn't want to offend anyone else because, listen, you know, sometimes you just got to make a living however best you can. Um, In all seriousness, to answer your question, um, there's a bit of a formula in terms of the way we get into these things that I found was working with In Search of Darkness in terms of getting the nostalgic juices flowing. And so I don't, I I wait before I get anywhere near talking about somebody's project. So if I'm talking to, you know, um, Peter Weller about RoboCop, I'm not going to be talking about about RoboCop for a little while. We're going to talk about the broader themes to get their, you know, their juices flowing. But very similar to In Search of Darkness, I always out of the gate talk about their memories of the movies that made them. And so what is your favorite horror movie? Or in this case, what is your favorite sci-fi movie growing up that made a real influence on you and impacted your life and may or may not have driven you to seek out more sci-fi in a different way? And I find even if you're not that, even if someone is not really that into sci-fi, there's always that one that's to like, oh yeah, you know, the day the earth stood still or, you know, invaders from Mars or Star Wars, whatever it is, there's that one movie where it just transcends the genre as something that really made an impact and helped shape their perception of what sci-fi can be. And and to also dive into what you're talking about a little bit, when it comes to these different uncles you're talking about, there's really, it's really a different tone for this film because there's more of a intellectual element as well as a heartfelt element to these movies. And that, that's not to say that doesn't belong in horror as well, but horror is more of an emotional knee-jerk kinetic reaction to the type of material. And then you could t- talk about the themes and what it means. But whereas you're talking about sci-fi, that's really the kind of first thing you start thinking about. You know, the emotion kind of comes second, whereas horror, the emotion comes first. It sort of flips it around. So the approach to whether you're talking about a specific movie or how these movies are made the approach is slightly different. The, the, the movie segments are all a little bit longer because they take a little more time mm-hmm. to kind of break down the different elements we have available from the, the talent talking about it and, and uh, recontextualizing it decades later. So, yeah, this is a little bit different movie. But I'll add one last thing is that the nostalgia here seems to be a lot more potent than the other films in, a, in just a different way. Uh, sure. In that um, there's much more at heart with all these movies than I, I suspected. Um, you know, these movies meant so much to me. And, mm-hmm. and, and I hope my passion for all of this, this genre, which is a very wide ranging genre, I think it comes through because I love it so much. But I think in, in dissecting the various pieces that make us our, des- describe our interest in finding out more about sci-fi and what, you know, these movies that inspired us and then inspired us to find out more about them, whether we read about it in magazines, we would seek out the poster, we would consume the marketing. We just wanted more. 
you know, and it is, it's as much the video store experience or buying a magazine to find out more or listening to the soundtrack or playing with the toys, whatever have you may have, you know, whatever you had in your life to expand your experience of taking the film home with you with back in the day, you couldn't do that. So you did everything else to compensate. That I think is really connecting with a lot of people watching this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I feel like you just answered my follow up <laughs> question in, in a way, um, but kind of keeping on that same idea. I, I wrote this quote down from uh, Kerry O'Quinn, the uh, who who ran Starlog magazine. Uh, he said he said sci fi is more about the possibilities than the dangers, and as somebody who Pete's more of the sci-fi person, I'm more of the horror person. Uh, I think we both love and respect each genre, but I'm right. more horror, he's more sci-fi. Right. Uh, I took that quote and <clears throat> my first thought was, horror is the exact opposite. Horror is all about the dangers and like walking into the dangers and we want to see the dangers, not really caring about the possibilities so much. Um, and I was going to ask you, about some of those similarities and differences, but what is it about these two genres that one of them is all about possibilities, one of them's all about like the danger and, and the end result usually that, you know, they're so similar. I mean, I'm wearing a Thing shirt. The Thing is prominently featured in both of your, your documentaries because it is horror, but it's also sci-fi. And so what is it about these two genres that are like just forever linked? Well, what's an interesting way of looking at it is sometimes the uh, the macro or or, or um, the, the approach, whether whether it's a micro view or a macro view, chosen by the filmmaker. So take Alien for example. You know, Alien is about all sorts of things. You know, blue collar workers, space travel, um, science experiments and possibility, uh, and and the potential for corporate greed and bioweapons. There, that's all there, but it's also just a haunted house movie in space where the monster's going to get you and you're scared crap, you know, shitless about that stuff. Um, it's, it, it allows both, you know, the thing allows both because it's really just a bunch of people and paranoia, but it's also about who's, who's the thing and who's not. And the don't coming to the realization, it dawns on you that if you don't squash this now, maybe at the expense of your own life, this is going to be the end of the world in this tiny remote, you know, uh, Arctic station, you know? So um, there's different ways of, of approaching these stories, but it, it, it's storytelling. Um, but it's storytelling on, a, on an intellectual level that you is either overt or, or more subtle. But I think sci-fi really, uh, in general, uh, invites you to think about the possibilities, both positive and negative, the ramifications of decisions, both positive and negative. And I think that's why, uh, you know, you can love horror and you can love sci-fi. You can love just as much equally. But I think it takes a different mindset to appreciate one versus the other. You kind of switch your brain to uh, a little more, like I said, uh, you know, it's not black and white, but one's a little more intellectual. One's a little more visceral. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too, because the way that the movie sets it up is that there seem to be a lot more uh, sort of negative sci-fi movies 
prior in prior decades of like the negative consequences of humans using science and then all of a sudden in the 80s you have you know america trying to kind of rebuild itself and star wars kind of paved the way in the late 70s um and so there's this whole idea that you present in this documentary that the public was sort of looking for uplifting sci-fi and just kind of went all in with some of these really positive movies and what's interesting about this documentary is that i feel like for me and danny like danny just said we kind of had the inverse experience where it's like in search of darkness he probably have seen most of the movies or at least knew about most of the movies whereas with this movie i felt like i've seen about 90 percent of the movies in this documentary and um there's only about four that i had never even heard of before but i remember seeing them as a kid and so that's what i was kind of wondering about because i know that with in search of darkness uh like the sequels you get more and more obscure um with this movie was there like a real goal to just pick the kind of shining examples because i know that like sci-fi fans are very outspoken and maybe they would have been like oh you didn't include robocop or oh you didn't include star trek you know two you know so was there a goal to just focus on the shining examples well when you make these movies that you know are four to five hours long and you think it's going to include everything and then that one thing that you wanted isn't there and you say how could you not have that in there you know, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, you know, the, the problem is there's so much great stuff in that decade. The 80s just has so many amazing films, but there's a also a whole different approach to how films were made because you've got the theatrical, big budget, highly marketed, very commercial stuff. And then you have a whole other level of straight to video because the video explosion in the 80s allowed filmmakers like, you know, Roger Corman to just go, well, he would get theatrical stuff too, but a lot of stuff would go straight to video or be discovered for the first time on video. Uh, and straight to video was something that, you know, if you had a knockoff Mad Max movie from Italy called Battle Truck, that's where you'd find it, you know, because you could never find that in the theater. Um, here's the thing. Uh, this is the first movie about sci-fi that we're doing. And there are so many heavy hitters that if I selectively choose all of them, there's no room for the eclectic stuff. If I choose a lot of eclectic stuff, then you're going to say, why didn't you do this one? Why didn't you do that one? Right. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. I did a little bit of that. Um, but the idea is, um, you know, I'm very optimistic because there's so much ground to cover. Easily could do part two, part three if you want to. Uh, I figured, you like the template for In Search of Darkness, you kind of do the commercial heavy hitter stuff first with some eclectic choices. And then if there's success and people want more, ideally, that's when I could really, you know, go to town on some of these more eclectic titles or unheard of titles or foreign titles that no one's ever seen, you know, but, uh, or, you know, few have seen. So it's really my approach, but the idea is I'm such a completist. I want it all in there. And, and I, when I did my rough cut, the rough cut went easily another 90 minutes when I just had to stop because uh, I could have kept on going with all the material I've got. And uh, I just had to, some of the, some of the really well-known films that you, you know, we won't name them here. So I want some surprises, you know, but uh, some of the really well-known films I, I had, I had segments cut and ready to go. And I just said, I got to mix and match. I got to see how it all fits together. It's a big jigsaw puzzle, and I do want to tell a story here. Uh, so uh, ideally, it all starts in part two. <laughs> Excellent. Pete, I think what Dave is saying is Transformers will be in the sequel. <laughs> Relax. 
can, I, I, I know, listen, I thought of you very specifically, Pete, and, and I, I dreaded this moment because I was going to have to let you down somehow. Because I know, <laughs> I remember you were like, I want Transformers and it's going to be in there. And I trust you, my friend. I, I worked hard to make sure that it happened. But uh, uh, there was certain ta talent that I was trying to get a hold of that wasn't available. Remember, this is a COVID era film. So there are a lot of people who uh, might have been available or uh, said that they were available. And then we stopped. And then when we started up again, it was like, you know, who's the groundhog or the meerkat popping up their head saying, I'll go out and do an interview. And we did a right. lot of interviews outside so we could have, you know, airflow and that kind of stuff. But, you know, the way it worked with some of the, the talent and we have 70 plus people in this movie, just really great, great, great people who are just icons of the era. Sometimes you want someone who can represent a film. And if you can't get that person because they're not available or they say, sure, but I'm busy because all of a sudden, I, after not working for months and months and months, I'm in high demand. Sometimes at a certain point, you just have to draw a line. So that is that is my humble apology, sir. <laughs> David, I think this is an obvious direction to go to in terms of questioning, um, given current events. But so much of, of 80s sci-fi, especially the early 80s sci-fi, is steeped in the Cold War. And here we are, it's 2022, we're 30-plus years later, Russia and Ukraine are in the middle of a conflict. Uh, my students are asking me every day if World War III is about to start. And I'm like about a month away from teaching the Cold War in my classes. So do you think, from, from a science fiction perspective, do you think that we could see a revival of the type of science fiction that we saw in the 80s, given what we're seeing in the world right now? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's, if you think about it, uh, separate from, from a Cold War era style film, we already have a, a myriad pandemic style films in the works. I mean, think about it, and this is sort of sidestep, uh, not sidestepping, this is sort of a, a sidebar of that question. But if you think about television and commercials, in the past two years with the COVID era, where you get to a point where you're watching television and you'd have crowds of people together without masks. And you thought to yourself, oh, that's crazy, you know? Uh, but then all of a sudden you have some commercials where people are showing up at, at your door wearing masks or people are walking into places wearing masks. And I'm just talking about myself. I, you know, I, I vax and I, I wear my mask and, my first thought was, I don't want to see masks. You know, that, that's, that's ruining the illusion that we, I don't want to be reminded of what I'm really living through right now. Mm -hmm. um, same thing now with the Cold War. Um, when, I, when I revisited so many of these films, you know, I was born in 1968. So I was a 70s kid and an 80s teen. Uh, and I had happily repressed the memories of daily thoughts of I'm going to be obliterated at the push of a button one day, potentially. Um, but that was a thing that uh, my whole generation uh, and people older and younger than me uh, lived with daily uh, back then. And when I revisited these films uh, and this era of films, it really came back to me. I was like, you know, there was a lot more addressing these issues in either heroic ways or in, uh, you know, dystopian or apoc apoc apocalyptic ways or post-apocalyptic ways 
where most of our entertainment was either wish fulfillment, what if, or or worst case scenario uh, that really uh, wove in a lot of these themes about nuclear Armageddon. You know, James Cameron had, you know, a nuclear explosion or Skynet or, you know, in, in many of his films, um, you know, we had uh, the day after, which was a TV movie uh, that Nicholas Meyer, who went on to direct, you know, time after time and uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan and Star Trek films. Um, these were things that were incredibly, incredibly potent in our lives that we had to just deal with. And um we have a lot of people who lived in the era before me when they were having to do duck and cover drills at school and mm -hmm. and talking as adults at, at how ridiculous that was because like duck and cover really that's going to protect you from a nuclear war good luck you know um <laughs> contemporary films these days i'm sure will kind of bring some of these things back because films Contemporary films uh, reflecting the times, especially with science fiction, whether it's, you know, another planet and aliens or whether it's a what if scenario where someone presses the wrong button and you've got a chain of events where next thing you know, you have to grapple with the end of the world. And what do you do and what would you do? Um, that's always going to be around because as, as long as we have uh, authoritarian people running the show, uh, it's it's always going to be this way, and it's very sad and depressing. And the last thing I want to do is be part of the zeitgeist. But uh, I think it helps us grapple with what we're dealing with in the present day. And the least you could do is say, you're not alone. You could teach your students to just say, we dealt with this on a daily basis in previous generations. There was a stretch when it was more about afraid of terrorists coming in, you know, or or a lone, uh, you know a, a gunman coming in, and we we're all dealing with some pretty awful, awful psychological trauma that we have to suppress or repress uh, on a daily basis. And now we're, you know, coming full circle with World War III. Um, what can you do? You're powerless to do it. So the real story here is how do you maintain your sanity and maybe escapism with protagonists saving the day is a bit of a salve that we all need. You know, it's, it's interesting that you say that, that we have these sort of modern fears that we are always dealing with in each generation. And yet, like Star Trek itself represents like an optimistic future, this positive future. And it's, it's real interesting because I feel like your documentary focuses very heavily on Star Trek. Because, I mean, you, you cover the Wrath of Khan, you know, the search for Spock, the voyage home. And, um, you know, you also kind of talk about Star Trek a lot in terms of... Um, the Challenger explosion and kind of the space shuttle and Star Trek's connection as well. So I was wondering, was that an intentional choice to focus on the Star Trek trilogy that's in the early 80s uh, versus Star Wars? I know that you have Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi in the 80s as well. And Star Wars gets so much attention. Were, were you really trying to showcase Star Trek a lot? Sure. Well, I'm a Trekkie through and through. Here, look, look behind me. There you go. Of so course, there's yeah. the Enterprise right there. Uh, for those listening, I've got a Star Trek The Motion Picture poster behind me. Uh, I love both equally. Uh, I like to joke that my uh, my life is the of uh, this the, that meme with the with the boyfriend who gets distracted by the girl, and uh, you know my girlfriend is Star Trek, and then Star Wars watch it walks by, and I'm like, woo, what's that? You know. <laughs> But uh, that's that's kind of how things work for me. But in the 80s, you know, there were more Star Trek films than there were Star Wars films. 
Mm-hmm. Star Wars came out in 77. Empire came out in 80. Return of the Jedi came out in 83. Uh, Star Trek Two, you know, Star Trek uh, motion picture came out in 79, two weeks before, you know, 1980. Um, so it gets some lip service, but we're talking about two, three, and four. I had a five already cut, and I decided not to continue with it just because I figured we had plenty of Star Trek with it. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, Star Wars. Star Wars kind of hogs all the glory, uh, but Star Trek Two arguably does too as well. Um, but when you have people representing those films with really interesting things to say. Uh, and and those films really punctuate the decade with their consistency. Uh, and also, if you take Star Trek two, three, and four, Will Wheaton, who's one of our uh, talent who talks about stuff, uh, he points out um, that is like the ultimate sort of trilogy within a, a bunch of sequels of films. Mm-hmm. That's a sort of a contained story that was doing you know that kind of uh, you know continued storytelling way before we had it elsewhere you know in marvel you know shared universe and so on and so forth so i think it was uh it, it, it is doing star trek a disservice if i don't put two three and four together in some way shape or form yeah <laughs> yeah well I, I think it's okay to omit five i know that's not everybody's cup of tea i know it's oh, a bite your, tongue, bite your tongue it might be the best for some people Listen, all these movies, all these movies are are very uh, important for everybody. And all I could say about Star Trek Five, yeah, Star Trek Five is essentially, you know, the the sort of butt of many Star Trek jokes in terms of the series. But uh, I've got some really great stories about why Star Trek Five did not uh, do as well as the others, and it has a lot to do with production problems. Uh, and that's a really interesting story. You know, much like when I go into stories like Howard the Duck or Mac and Me, which are also punchlines. There's some interesting, compelling stories about why these films did not, you know, ace the box office or, you know, turn out to be a great film, but they're still an interesting story uh, lined with very good intentions. So Star Trek is similar in in, uh, in terms of Star Trek V. <laughs> and you'll have to wait for another In Search of Tomorrow to find out. Right. I was really interested in... Uh, the obviously the talk about Superman two and uh, the the whole director switch and mm. I and I remember I messaged Pete and I said I I want I want to ask David it's I can't imagine because everybody mo- I don't want to say everybody most people when asked what's your favorite Superman movie I think the consensus is probably part two is the best of the of the films maybe the original. A lot of people love part two. I just have this feeling that because it was the 80s, the whole director switch was kind of wasn't covered that much. Whereas today, that information would be blown up all over social media. And that movie would be like a failure upon failures, no matter how great it was, just because people would walk in ready to hate it. So can you just talk about like some of the stories like that from the 80s where in these these films where something like that happens a behind the scenes switch and how that would like work today one of my guests uh one of the talents on screen for this film is uh craig miller uh and he was uh, a publicist and a marketer and a writer he's still he, he in, in, of, of for lucasfilm early you know back in the day so he was there at the earliest days of lucasfilm um but he was also a um a marketing consultant for studios, so for like Warner Brothers and for Universal. And so 
Um, he has some really interesting insight on Superman too, about how uh, back in the day they made sure that they cherry picked the, the right person who wasn't didn't have sour grapes about this whole situation, who could go on tour. That being Sarah Douglas, who plays Ursa, who's in our film talking about this. Uh, you know, she said they really put her through the paces to see if she could tell a story without spilling the beans. <laughs> you know, on uh, uh, because Christopher Reeve. Gene Hackman, Marco Kidder, they were all upset that Richard Donner lost his job and then couldn't finish the film and they had to reshoot a bunch of the same scenes. Uh, Richard Lester uh, picked up where Richard Donner left off and reshot a bunch of stuff. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Sarah Douglas's point of view about it. We, I won't spoil too much about it, but she shares how she felt about it. And uh, I guess to answer your question is ultimately, she was the one who, who went on tour around the world you know, supporting the film. And so you can guess what her take on it might have been. But uh, ultimately, um, this was the pre-internet age. You know, the the studios controlled it a lot more. And you didn't have a bunch of people snapping pictures on set and leaking photos. Uh, everything was just much more contained. And while we were all hungry for whatever we could get, we got that from Starlog magazine or Cinefantastique or whatever we could get. But other than that, you know, the, the daily gossip column of, uh, you know, the daily news, you know, or the, you know, the, the beagle, the, the bugle, the daily bugle, whatever was was talking about this stuff was the only place you can get it. I, I don't know. We were just as hungry then as we are hungry now. But I think we never had an opportunity to share our, our knee jerk reactions to all this stuff. And, and pig pile on a good idea, a bad idea, or just a knee-jerk reaction and make it about us. Um, back then, you responded to it, you talked about it, but you just had to wait till the movie to see what you got. And by the time you got the movie, you didn't have all these spoilers, and the trailers didn't give everything away more often than not. Sometimes they spoiled things. But uh, at the end of the day, you just were happy to get the movie, and you showed up, and you watched it, and... I don't know. Simpler times is all I could say. And then, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> I was just thinking about certain actors that we see multiple times in your documentary, but then you're not able to interview them because they've sadly passed on. Right. And I was thinking about uh, Bill Paxton in particular. Right. Because Bill Paxton is in so many of the movies that you feature, but yet, you know, he's not around anymore. And so, you know, you have aliens and you have, um, you know, he's in Terminator, he's in Weird Science, all these movies that are in your documentary. And I know that when you were doing the Aliens part, Sigourney Weaver mentions Bill Paxton's funeral. When it comes to these sort of actors that are just like such a big part of 80 sci-fi, were, were you like looking for little bits like that to kind of pay homage to these like really standout stars? So yeah, sometimes, sometimes. I mean, a lot of it is just about what comes up in a conversation. You know, I'm sitting down with Mark Ralston, who plays Drake, you know, in Aliens. And, uh, you know, I'll go, I'll, uh, when I ask all about the making of the film and his experiences making the film, uh, you know, I'm as interested in, in talking about James Remar not being in the film, but being originally cast, right. you know, because he was there. You know, he was doing, he was doing, um, you know, uh, uh, boot camp, you know, with, with James Remar before James Remar was recast. And, and, you know, you eventually go down the line, what, you know, what was your, your memories or experiences with this person or that person? And, um, Bill Paxton was, you know, he, he Mark Rolston says that Bill 
Paxton really kind of was the glue of that set because he was just, he was everyone's pal and kept the mood light because it was very hard work. Um, and he, after the movie ended, kept everyone together like a family because movies are like a traveling circus. Uh, and, and, you know, you go from location to location and soundstage, soundstage to soundstage, easy for me to say. Uh, but the thing is, you work really hard. You work 15, 18, 20 hours a day for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Everyone becomes so close. And then there's that last day and you say, see, ya, I'm off to another project. So let's get lunch on Monday. And then you never see him again. Or you run into him on something and you're like, oh, you know, all the best intentions. But everyone knows that you come real close to these people and then you never see them again. Well, Bill Paxson was the guy who made sure everyone got together and had drinks and had lunch and had dinner and got together for events. And, and he was, he was the glue for everybody. And so, yeah, you know, he's, he's sorely missed among many others. And he had a real impact on so many of the movies that we love. And it's great to hear these stories where the person was, was as wonderful as the person we admire on screen. Pete just asked you about like working with um, talking about these, these, great actors who appear like Bill Paxson types who've sadly passed on. Uh, one person who you did get to interview and who's in the documentary several times is Ivan Reitman, who just passed away in February. Uh, can you just talk about what it was like uh, getting to sit down and talk to him? Because he was such a, a vital part of our childhood. Like I grew up with Ghostbusters. I had a heavy metal poster on my wall. Uh, so. Uh, that was one of those like celebrity deaths that like when it happens, you, you, it really hits you. Yeah. Yeah. We were very fortunate to have Ivan say yes. Uh, he was a wonderful interview. And uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll just say first and foremost, uh, when, when I look at who I'm going to get in my film or try to get in my film, we're always aiming for the A-list and the top level folks. And you never know who's going to say yes or who's going to be available and who's not. And I think we got some really wonderful people. Uh, Ivan Reitman is one of those people where, where uh, when he said yes, I was like, God, Ivan Reitman said yes. Yay. That's incredible. Uh, and for me, it's really cool because, yeah, we all know and love Ghostbusters. And of course, we're going to have Ghostbusters in this film. But for me, I'm like, yay, I get to talk to him about heavy metal. Yay, I get to talk to him about Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, you know? Um, you know, he was like, let's talk, you know, Twins has sci-fi, you know, let's talk about some of the sci-fi in Twins, you know? Because even though it's a comedy, you know, science creates these, these mismatched twins. Um, it was very, very cool. When I met him, he was incredibly gracious. I went to his home up in Montecito. And when I say home, he has he has quite the establishment that Housebusters, Ghostbusters built, um, you know. But this guy's a legend, you know. You know, uh, stripes, you know, uh, meatballs, uh, Animal House, meatballs. I mean, it just like huge, huge films that we all know and love and shaped our world. And uh, it was just super cool. Uh, he was in perfect health when I was hanging out with him. Uh, he was incredibly gracious and. Um, you know, it, it makes this film that much more of a, a time capsule for the people who are in it, uh, who have passed and who are alive. Uh, yeah. And it's that much more bittersweet that he was in our film and he's no longer with us. But uh, I'm so grateful that he could be part of this and I could have him talking about some of the things you might not expect him to talk about. A big overarching theme uh, in the documentary is 
how science fiction of the 80s predicted so much of uh, what what I guess we can call science fact today. Right. Uh, they bring up things like GPS, uh, for one. That was like the, the uh, or Alexa, uh, who I just said her name and, and the thing right behind <laughs> me turned on. Oh, crap. Uh, but like they, things in the 80s, oh, quiet. Uh, they, the 80s sci-fi movies predicted all this stuff and it's happening now. And so my question was, uh, how wild is it for you to revisit these movies and see like the birth of modern technology? And is there one particular piece of modern technology that was like developed in the 80s that really stuck out to you talking about them and rewatching the movies? I, I, I go straight to Running Man. Uh, it, it was very cool. You know, when you go back and you first think about, okay, how does, you know, the visions of technology. So you think, where's my flying car, you know, Blade Runner, my spinner, you know, where's my flying car, you know, uh, AI and androids and all that kind of stuff. That's like the far end of the spectrum of we're not quite there yet, but we're trying, we're starting to do things. You know, if you look at the stuff that Boston Dynamics is doing, it's uh, equally astounding and frightening at the same time, you know, where they're creating uh, robot dogs and robot, you know, uh, humanoids moving around. Um, but that being said, Running Man was probably the one film where I was just like, we're living in the Running Man age in a lot of ways, whether it's, uh, you know, deep tech technology or walking in and talking to, I won't say her name because she'll turn on over you, but, you know, Siri or, you know, the, the woman with the A name. But, you know, it's like uh, these movies were very prescient, you know, they really, they really... Some were visions of the future. Someone, some were predictions of the future. Some are, are hopeful. Some just think it's super cool. But it's like, uh, you know, I, I grew up when, when the microwave was kind of new. You know, it makes me sound like a fuddy-duddy now. But, you know, in the 70s, I, I don't know when the microwave really was first introduced, but it was mass-produced in the 70s, where all of a sudden people were starting to get it in your kitchen and it wasn't like some high-priced item. You know, you have to remember when all these things are introduced, they're very expensive at first, you know, like the Betamax machine or, you know, <laughs> your, your VCR is just, is like a coffee table size thing, you know. Um, but microwaves were just like, guess what? You don't have to wait all this time. Now you press three buttons and you can, you know, have your toasted cheese sandwich in, you know, 30 seconds. Um, the, the technology that were in so many of these films, uh, it really was visionary and... You know, I like to look at movies like um, uh, Minority Report. Mm -hmm. and, and I feel like in a certain way, we're kind of living that already. I mean, I love this, this scene where Tom Cruise is, is walking through the mall and every ad, everyone is being beamed into their eye it's, and they know exactly who they are and they're immediately right. getting targeted ads right to them as they yeah. walk through the mall. And while we don't have that happening specifically where someone is targeting your your face with, with recognition software and then, you know, barking an ad at you, we've got that every single day on, you know, as we as we surf the net, you know, to the point where we all know it. And more often than not, I you know, I choose it because I'm like, well, I'd rather have ads for, you know, cool collectibles than Depends diapers, you know, because, you, know, you know, maybe that market will change for me down the line, but I don't want collectibles, you know, or I don't want, you know, you know, wax candles that smell like, you know, uh, body parts. So anyway, 
it's 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 a we we live in a very amazing age. Uh, I marvel at the computer in my pocket and on my wrist. You know, um, it's super cool. And uh, technology can can and should be feared, but it's really the people who are behind it and the nefarious ways that it's used versus the ways that it really benefits us. And I think it is the ultimate double-edged sword. And however you look at it, there's positive and there's negative, and you can't have one without the other. But uh, it is part of our world now. And uh, yeah, the 80s movies, they, they sure predicted a huge amount of what we've got today and around the corner. Yes. And I'm really lucky, you know, that you were able to coincidentally name our sponsors too, Depends Diapers and also those human body parts smelling candles. So thank you <laughs> for that in there. But uh, I was going to say, speaking of plugging, David, you are like so excellent at succinctly explaining all of your projects that you are in charge of and that you run. I've also been hearing about In Search of Legends. Are, are you connected to that as well? Yeah, uh, Creator VC is the company that uh, is Robin Block's company, who's the executive producer of all these films. Uh, it's a small company. We're worldwide. When I say we're worldwide, we have people in, you know, all over, in different gifted countries around the globe, but we're still a small team of about 10 people. Uh, and we get a lot done. Uh, a small company with big projects. And so, yeah, we have lots of stuff in the works in the future. Uh, one of them is in search of legends, and that's about 80s fantasy films. So, you know, whether you're talking about the never ending story or Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, or Red yeah. Sonia, or the Legend. Dark, Legend with Tim Curry, Ridley Scott movie, and Tom Cruise and Mia Sara. Um, so much great stuff to that that so many of us loved. Uh, it's it's ripe for the picking, you know, Lady Hawk. Whatever, whatever, what, what have you, you know, there's all this amazing fantasy uh, out there. Krull, you know, it's a mix of action, sci-fi and, and fantasy. A lot of these things have carryover and, yep, In Search of Legends is on the way. Um, uh, and In Search of Darkness, we want to do In Search of Darkness 90s and we want to do In Search of Darkness 70s. Uh, I can't tell you what we're doing next because, believe it or not, we don't know. We're busy right now getting in search of tomorrow out there, but we're we're planting the seeds. And um, along with that, we also have another film that Creator VC is doing uh, called FPS, which is first-person shooter about video games, and working on another one uh, which is um, in search of pixels, which is all about the pixels which is all about video game revolution. That one's in development as well. But FPS is in production right now. Um, so that's a project that you can find out more and back that one if you're interested. And, you know, what's really cool is we, everything that we do is relevant to what we believe our, our, our followers and our community and our fellow fans and, and super geeks like ourselves just love. And uh, what makes us different is that we don't just crowdfund, we crowdfund our stuff, but we don't just crowdfund it and say, see you later, it'll be done when it's done and then you can have it. We want everyone involved in the whole process and be, we like to be transparent and talk about the project and, and, and answer questions and involve our community with ideas and suggestions. And it makes it for a, a very cool project because people feel like they're much more involved with their investment in shepherding a project over the finish line. And they have a, a say in, in the type of ultimate product that they're going to get, which is completely, you know, designed for 
the fans and the fans who brought it into existence, you know, from the crowdfunding get-go. So I think it's a super cool way of making movies because you get to make movies for everyone who wants them in the first place and, and you can give them the kind of stuff that they want. And if there's too much to cover, ideally you keep on going in part two and part three and so on. I was going to say, it feels like uh, you and Robin Block are uh, and creator VC. I feel like not too long into the future, there's going to be like the in search of box set where it's, there's, the in darkness one and two and three in search of tomorrow uh legends uh there's the the action movie doc that was done then you could do like in search of laughter about great 80s comedies and you know it, it's it's just fantastic like robin are you listening he's already <laughs> he's already plotting out the blueprints of that box set but like yeah. i i think that speaks to uh I, I think that's one of the things about the eighties that is the most um, important for this time is we eighties kids really uh, we grew up asking questions. We didn't have the internet. So like we were the ones who ran to the bookstore to get the magazines and we want, like we are the perfect generation uh, to grab onto these four or five hour documentaries that give us, everything we want to know whereas maybe like a kid born 10 15 years later would just be like i'll just google it but mm -hmm. i i think that's why pete and i especially appreciate like these documentaries so much and i think that's why the crowdfunding has been there for you i i well i i, I your support means a lot to me and to us and um your feedback and your excitement about this stuff is something that we pay very close attention to. Um, you know, we're, we, we have a by the fans for the fans mentality. Um, and this, like I said before, this is the kind of stuff that we love and we would want to see ourselves. And we put ourselves in a position to make these films. I hope that for future generations that are not like us, that they pick up in search of tomorrow. I hope that they can see these original movies and not think, let's make a reboot of this. Let's make a sequel to this. But instead, like, oh, we should make a whole new movie. And they're inspired by these movies instead. So, like, you know, if you want to just bring more people into your world, where can these people find these documentaries? How can they be a part of this process? Uh, well, In Search of Tomorrow uh, is on sale uh, for a limited time. If you go to 80sscifidoc.com, uh, you got to go between now and March 27th. Uh, as I said, we're a small company, so we manufacture in batches. And so we we have to know how many we're going to manufacture. Uh, and so it's not like we, we, we manufacture a lot and distribute it to stores and have a big stockpile in a warehouse somewhere. It doesn't work that way for a small company. It's not uh, It's not economically sensible to do that. So right now, this is the only time you can get it. You can't get it on streaming. You can't get it at the store. You got to go to 80scifidoc.com. The cool thing is you get all sorts of cool perks, like you get your name in the credits. So you could look at that. I mean, people now who have gotten this early, they're all getting on social media saying, I am a, a part of making this a reality. And I'm proud to show this to my friends and my family and my dog, you know? So that's a super cool thing. And then you get, you know, the collectibles. You get, you know, uh, uh, three exclusive posters of amazing artwork uh, uh, for the film and, you know, a variety of other things. You could choose your DVD and your Blu-ray. You had a slipcase. You got your digital copy. 
you know, a variety of things. You check out the site and you can see what's, what's going on. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, if you go to the Twitter, you know, the Twitter handle, the Instagram handle, the Facebook handle of 80s Sci-Fi Doc, you get all the information. Uh, up next after this, we've got In Search of Darkness coming up, In Search of Darkness 3. So if you go to 80s, sci sorry, I gave you 80s Sci-Fi Doc. Now you go to the same places, but 80s Horror Doc or 80shorrordoc.com. Uh, that's where you get all the information uh, if you want to get in line to purchase In Search of Darkness 3, which I got to go because I got to make it. But that being said, no, we're in production on that, uh, which is pretty cool. I mean, if I could ask you without like spoiling too much, you know, is there for each of you one particular thing that you really connected with for In Search of Tomorrow, you know, compared to the other stuff that, you know, In Search of Darkness or just coming blind, not knowing what to expect? So uh, for me, I'm sorry to like, take over, Danny, but like uh, the Star Trek stuff is very important to me, too, because as a kid, my parents would take me to the theaters. My mom has a story about how she went to go see the Wrath of Khan and I was an infant and I was crying. They had to take me out of the theater and I just peed on her. So she always remembers me peeing on her at the Wrath of Khan. But I was going to say that those movies, the the Star Trek, apparently, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, those movies meant a lot to me in particular, and I really like just hearing Nicholas Meyer talk about his approach to those movies and what he would have done for the search uh, for Spock and just like what those movies meant to the people involved. So I think it's that particular set of movies for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, it, it just, it, it really felt like a time capsule. Uh, I had so many of these movies taped on VHS um like explorers flight of the navigator like it, it made me think about my dad passed away last year and it, it just made me think about all the times my dad would take me to the video store and and we would just rent these movies on repeat and then he would tape them off tv whenever they would get on there um and then the other thing is just uh during the scene on the abyss uh during your your section on the abyss it my favorite subgenre of of anything is anything that has to do with underwater. Jaws, mm -hmm. Jaws is my favorite movie. So anything, and like I saw on the poster in the background, yeah, like Lords of the Deep, Deep Star Six, uh, Leviathan, and the Abyss. And I'm just like that was maybe my favorite year of my childhood because I could rent an underwater horror or sci-fi movie <laughs> every week and see all of this great stuff. So those. It also made me realize I have to rewatch The Abyss. It's been far too long. Mm. Great well, th movie. Th thanks for sharing with the the, the highlights for you guys. I, I think maybe I'll, I'll end on this and just say what I've recognized uh, in the last, in the In Search of Darkness movies and, and as much so in terms of how I approach all the movies here um, in In Search of Tomorrow is that these movies just go, they transcend the movie itself. So. This is a movie about not only movies, but an era and the advances of the era and the visions of the era. But all these movies, it's really about who you were with, what you were doing, why these movies were important to you, even if the movie itself wasn't that important or memorable. Right. You know, who you were with, 
um, what you were escaping from or escaping to in your life at the time, you know, how much of a deep dive you wanted to do before or after and the memories of just doing what you could or getting a piece of it and a little souvenir for yourself, whether it was a soundtrack or a magazine or, you know, cutting out pictures from Starlog magazine and taping it to your bedroom door. You know, these are things I think all of us did in some way, shape or form. And, you know, I, I think of Megaforce and I think about not only seeing the theater, but I think of every single comic book that had, you know, Ace Hunter, you know, deeds, not words pointing at you, giving the thumbs up, you know, that was as much about the hype of the film than the film itself, you know, which may or may not have delivered, you know, and I remember all that kind of stuff. And uh, it just warms our hearts. It's just happy, happy memories. And and you can't discount what kids are experiencing today. They're, they're experiencing things differently, but they're going to remember all this stuff in a whole different way. And gosh, the last two years, they're going to all have, uh, they're all in the same boat. And so there's a whole generation that's going to be able to say, what were you doing when? Uh, where they could just talk to a stranger and everyone knows what they're talking about. And they're going to have a point of reference to expand their discussions about what pop culture they consumed and what they did to just deal with the time where you couldn't go out and people around you were getting sick and things were up and upside down and crazy. And then we all thought we were out of it. And next thing you know, World War Three is the next thing on the plate on their bingo card. So, you know, right. That, so that's, you know, we live in, in topsy turvy, crazy times. And so, I think it's always important to have one foot in reality to just make sure you know what's going on in the world. But I sure love to go back to the nostalgia of my youth to disappear into my collectibles and my movies and my TV shows and my music that brought real joy to myself and have happy memories of the people in my life, whether they're here now or they're no longer with us. They're always in our hearts, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're making me think about In Search of TikTok, which is going to come out in 1985. <laughs> and it'll be 2022. Remember this? Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> cool, man. Yeah. Well, dude, as always, like I said, it, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, we just love talking to you like every couple of months, it seems like. But it's like one of the highlights of doing this channel. So, well, definitely. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on again.